0: This is the Software and Technology Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you information, education, and inspiration. Only on MarketScale.
1: The more diversity of thought and the more diversity of background of the people working at tech companies, the better. So you have the
2: data scientists, many of them might come from a very technical background. And then you've got the business side, and these are two separate worlds and they have a very difficult time communicating and understanding what their priorities are. The blockchain idea was around 91. So about the time that the Terminator 2 movie was coming
3: out, the same idea of, in the digital world, we need verifiable documents.
0: Everything's downloaded, let's boot up the system. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Market Scale Software and Technology Podcast show. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And boy, oh boy, are we prepping for the holidays around here. And prepping for the holidays means doing Christmas shopping at the very last minute. That's exactly what I'm doing today. After finishing up these edits, I am headed to North Park Mall in Dallas, and I am binging on... Legos for my sister, perfume for my mom, a book for my dad, who knows what for my girlfriend. It's going to be uh, it's going to be a challenge. And with all that shopping, I think I'm probably going to provide some solid data for some retailers. And that's exactly what we're going to be chatting about here at the beginning of our episode before we jump into the meat of our content. And per usual, I got to love sourcing our very own Jeffrey Short uh, chief Editor here at market scale. He's in charge of all the writing content that we do, and of course, we got to source him for his fabulous radio voice. So yeah, we're keeping it light here to begin with, but at the same time, not that light because this is something that is concerning a lot of businesses and a lot of consumers, and I think it's important to understand how this data can be used ethically. So Jeff, how you doing today?
3: I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on. Um, I was just going to compliment you on what a professional segue that was oh, into thank software you. and technology. <laughs> I was wondering where that was going. You know, I was saying, uh, is he going to buy software and technology for Christmas? So mm. I was waiting for that. But you did a good job there. Uh, kind of. This topic. Thank
0: you. Yeah, you know, I always got to try and find innovative ways to bring up something random and then be like, and by the way, right. <laughs> software. I, mean, yeah, I think you're starting
3: to get the hang of the podcast thing here. Thank so, you. Yeah. yeah, hopefully.
0: Hopefully, doing it every day does that. But, anyways, we're looking at a piece that is going to be published on our software and technology page. It's called Data Privacy in an Ultra Accessible World. At least that's the draft title right now that might change, but it's written by market scale writer Christian Wilson. Tell me a bit about this article and the kind of insights that we're going to be able to pull away from this specific
3: piece. Well, it's a really interesting topic. I mean, data privacy has really been a big topic across the country with uh, things like Facebook and all the concerns and going to Capitol Hill, things like that. But from a business perspective, it's really interesting because they must love all the access they've gotten now that these social media companies and just software and technology companies in general can provide for them it's such a positive uh thing for them because the insight that you're able to gain from people based off of their data is i mean it's invaluable i mean think of all the insight you can get from knowing what people are searching for what they're clicking on on social media or where they're going so um, it can definitely, that's the other side of the coin here is uh, how much is too much, I guess. But uh, it's a wide open frontier and I think the winners in the business world are going to be the ones that can responsibly take advantage of this new data set that is so vast.
0: Yeah, and I think there are a lot of benefits to having this kind of data, especially as a business. Uh, but at the same time, it presents the Spider-Man question or the Spider-Man Vibe, which is with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> and with all this data, how do you go about using it ethically? Uh, I think Christian laid out some really interesting points in this article, and what really stood out to me were the numbers in this article. So the fact that location-targeted advertising is an estimated 21 billion 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 with a B industry, an industry that is always expanding. And the New York Times did an investigation saying that several businesses claim to track up to 200 million mobile devices in the United States. And that is an astounding number of information. Um, I'm sure there's information there that might be an overreach. Uh, I'm not totally sure. But at the same time, how can you not want to utilize that data to make informed business decisions? So there are positives and there are also negatives that you have to be able to balance. What are your thoughts on that?
3: Yeah. I mean, from a business standpoint, that data is the most accurate market study that you can get. It's literally people, you know, they're, they're, I don't want to say too much, but uh, about the article, I want to let people read it. But I mean, think of all the information that you're able to gather based on your cell phone and all the things that you, uh, search for online I and mean, you see it online already with uh, you know Clicking on a retailer site and then you go on Facebook and you see the ad there So um, I think a lot of people though on the other end they, a lot of people do like that They want to have that specific target ad They're more likely to buy something and I bet some people have some problems kind of reeling that in when the thing that you really want to Buy comes up in an ad <laughs> you're probably more likely to click on it and buy it right which is good because they will get the product but uh, Maybe spending a little bit too much. But I mean, it, like you said, it's all about that responsibility, that balance, how much is too much. But from a business standpoint, you cannot argue that this is not something that is extremely important for businesses because you're getting the most premier data that is possibly available. Right.
0: Well, and even when you look at it from the consumer angle about concerns with, oh, they're using all my data. um, I feel like at this point, we're a little numb to it. I know the first time that I saw a targeted ad, you know, I I Googled something, then went to Facebook and saw an ad for it. I was shocked, overwhelmed. Like, how are they Mm -hmm. tracking this? So crazy. And now it's almost comical, to the point where sometimes <laughs> I see the ad and I'm like, oh, I actually I actually could use that, right. and I click it. So I feel like people talk a big game about being so concerned that these companies are tracking their data, but to a degree, we're sort of encouraging it. Um, I mean, we use mobile apps for these companies daily. We like having a customized user experience. So why would we then complain that customers have a ton of data to give us that unique customer experience. And that's where you get into that weird gray area that people want it, but at the same time, they don't want you, you know, accessing their personal contacts on their phone or right. you know, something that crosses the line. And so I think that's where the conversation needs to focus right now is where is that
3: line? Well, um, I think it's, I mean, how much are consumers willing to give up? And right. apparently a lot. I mean, right. you, you know what you're getting into to an extent when you. Sign up for these apps. You sign away your rights. It's probably before you can even access it, you agree to the terms and conditions. Which no one reads. Right, exactly. (laughs) So um, it actually kind of reminds me of a 60 Minutes piece I ran this past weekend. It was actually on plastic. And it's kind of the same situation where you know plastic is bad for the environment. You know it's going to end up in the ocean washing up on some poor island with some poor animal that's getting affected by it. But try going a day without using plastic. Your your toothbrush, you're already knocked out. Right. Using the the (laughs) restroom, the toilet has got a plastic toilet seat, they were saying. So that is a trade off. I mean, you can complain about it all you want, of course, and there are legitimate concerns, definitely. Mm -hmm. But people are signing away their their rights to sort of complain in a sense. And businesses are smart to be taking advantage of it and buying that kind of data off of the software companies.
0: Right. Although, you know, I do think even with that signing off of the data, businesses do still need to be thinking about how can we use this ethically? Sure. And, and sure. I think it's good that we're having these conversations now. It's like, hey, if you didn't realize what you were signing away when you did sign up for all these apps, here's that information. And now I think, I mean, consumers are paying attention. Cambridge Analytica and the whole Facebook scandal, that was a big like, whoa, what? What are they doing with my data? So it's going to be interesting to see how retailers, um, how corporations, whatever, take this plethora of data and use it in an ethical way, use it in a responsible way, but also in a way that is going to boost revenue and hopefully deliver an experience for the customers that will be second to none. So, uh, you know, I think there's still a lot left to see and I'm looking forward to what's in store. So make sure you head to MarketScale Software to check out this piece. Again, it's by Christian Wilson. You should see it there on the front page. Jeff, thanks for your insight on this. Always love chatting. And uh, I need to bounce because I have Christmas shopping to do. (laughs) Thank you, man. All right. Have fun with that. Yeah, I'll try. Always great chatting with Jeff. Now let's transition into our main content for today. We're going to be hearing from Market Scale host Elmer Guardado quite a bit on this show. He did a lot of the features and he did a fabulous job. I think you're going to enjoy all of this content. We got a look at how Apple's recent move to Austin, Texas is affecting the local community. We're going to get to hear how blockchain technology is opening up a $31.8 trillion with a TR, trillion dollars of untapped value in the real estate marketplace. We're also going to be hearing from Campus Reel again, this time speaking to co founder Rob Carroll on building the back end of a video streaming platform. Before we jump in, let's get some industry news brought to you by, you guessed it, Elmer Guardado.
2: Welcome to your software and technology news minutes, brought to you by MarketScale. Our first story. GraphCore raises 200 million for funding. AI chip startup GraphCore from the UK has announced a 200 million Series D round today that's being jointly led by existing investor Atomico along with new investor Sophina. GraphCore is one of the numerous companies attempting to design a new class of chip that hopes to push data processing to new heights. Graphcore argues that currently, PC processing power is not as strong as it should be, so they're taking the task on themselves by building new processing hardware for machine learning applications. The funding round was led by UK venture capital firm Atomico and valued Graphcore at $1.7 billion, says the company. Existing investor Dell Technologies Inc and Robert Bosch Venture Capital also participated in the round. Graphcore also clarified that all the new money was inbound with no cashouts at the growth stage. Our next story, Elon Musk voted best CEO. Employees over at SpaceX and Tesla have anonymously voted Elon Musk among one of the best CEOs in the US according to Workplace Culture website comparably. He was voted 19th best CEO and was joined by GM CEO Mary Barra as auto sector representatives. Last year, Musk didn't rank on the list at all. The vote was opened from November 2017 to November 2018 and features anonymous voting with more than 50,000 companies being represented. In the end, the site had over 10 million ratings. When looking at the data, it is apparent that most of his votes came from SpaceX employees, and that generally Tesla employees tended to give Musk a lower score somewhere in the 70s. The latter doesn't come as a shock since Musk and Tesla employees have shared tense headlines all year about the company's potential work hazards and emergency malpractice. And your last software and technology news minute comes from China. Alibaba opens first high-tech hotel in China. The Chinese internet company Alibaba opened its first ever high-tech hotel in Hangzhou. It is called the Flyzoo Hotel and Hangzhou is already the home of the company's headquarters. The state media reports that guests can check in by simply scanning their face in a lobby kiosk and that facial recognition systems can be found throughout the hotel. Faces will act like key cards to access rooms and hotel amenities. Hotel guests can also look forward to controlling lights, televisions, and curtains via the room's Alibaba voice-activated digital assistant, all while robots are used to serve dishes, cocktails, and coffee. Wong King, CEO of Flyzoo Hotel said, the AI-based solution can help customers save time and relieve hotel employees from repetitive work. Wang also said that the new AI system will help improve the management efficiency of the hotel by reducing more than half of the labor force. These have been your software and technology news minutes. I'm Elmer Wardato. Thanks for joining me.
0: We're starting off our show with a look at Austin's new Apple campus, which hopes to bring thousands of jobs to the area in the next three years. How big will the facility be? How does the local government feel about the move? And why did Apple pick Austin? MarketScale host Elmer Guardado explores the news from national and local angles to give us a complete picture.
2: I'm your host, Elmer Guardado, and today we're going to dive deep and talk about Apple's new plan to build a $1 billion campus in Austin, Texas. On December 13th, Apple announced it would be making this investment and that it was all part of their overall plan to create 2,000 jobs across the U.S. in the next five years. Austin, Texas is already home to one Apple campus that employs 6,200 employees, and it's the company's biggest campus outside its headquarters in Cupertino, California. Apple's new Austin campus will be less than a mile from the existing one and it will spread across 133 acres and it will be located about 12 miles from the city's center. It is expected to make Apple the city's largest employer with a workforce of 5,000 employees and the capacity to add at least 10,000 more. While the confirmation of Austin is their most recent announcement, the company also stated earlier this year that it plans to build offices in Seattle, San Diego, and Culver City over the next three years as part of this big initiative to create jobs and keep work inside the U.S. According to CNN Business, the expansion comes after new U.S. tax laws were enacted late last year that prevented Apple from avoiding taxes on international profits. The company announced in January that it would invest $30 billion in U.S. facilities and create 20,000 jobs across the U.S. by 2023. Construction for this new facility is expected to go on until somewhere in 2021. With all that said, I also wanted to take a look at what was happening on the local level, right? Because I think... The interesting thing that we often forget is that big moves like this have many, many ripple effects in the area they're happening in. So on Tuesday, a couple days before this was all announced, Williamson County commissioners voted on a taxpayer funded incentive package for Apple that will be worth tens of millions of dollars over its 15 year life. The vote comes after leaders in Williamson County, the county where the new campus will be, spent much of the year trying to acquire a major corporate campus that would bring thousands of jobs to the area. So on Twitter, Williamson County, their official account tweeted, quote, the county will reimburse Apple 65% of their taxes paid to the county over the 15 year term. So this is huge news, right? Because Not only is this a great deal for Apple, but it looks like the county generally wants them there, right, and they're hoping that this deal will pay off by bringing in more jobs and new business to the city and the area. This agreement with Williamson County requires that Apple invest 40 million in the site over that time period, right, those 15 years, as well as hire 4000 workers by the deal's 12th anniversary. Right? So there are some stipulations here and some some very specific language about what the city hopes to get out of this Apple deal. So overall it seems like they're hoping that this is going to be a very symbiotic relationship. Another interesting local angle comes from Forbes tech and real estate writer Mary Ann Azevedo. She writes Even prior to the announcement, real estate prices, both residential and commercial, have been on an upward trajectory in the Austin area in recent years. The growth of the city's tech ecosystem has been largely behind it as its startup scene has flourished and a number of large tech companies have set up large offices in the area. The rising home prices and office rents have been good and bad. Good for landlords and investors, but bad for tenants and buyers. So I thought this was interesting too, cause it's another example of the kind of ripples we'll see. She mentions other large tech companies, right? So besides Apple, we do see other large employers, including Google, Facebook, and Amazon, and even Oracle, looking at spaces in Austin if they don't already have some there. So this isn't necessarily news or, or a unique situation, right? But I do think it's important to point out that introducing a facility of this size, not only, you know, 133 acres, not only that kind of size, but also the amount of employees it's going to bring in is going to affect various parts of a city's ecosystem. And for our last angle, I wanted to look into and better understand if there was a science or or any any speculation as to why Apple chose the locations it chose, right? And for some answers, we're going over to the Wall Street Journal where Trip Mickle writes, Each location where it, Apple, announced expansion plans Thursday reflects a different facet of Apple's evolving model. Culver City gives Apple a Hollywood home base as it pushes into video programming. Seattle is a machine learning hub where it can develop algorithms that personalize streaming music playlists and improve Siri. San Diego and Austin offer semiconductor engineers who can advance the customized chip efforts that help Apple wring more money out of its iPhones, iPads, and Macs. So this is interesting, right? Because it provides some insight and some speculation as to why these locations were chosen. And I think the latter is particularly interesting. The one about San Diego and Austin offering semiconductor engineers who can help advance the customized chip that Apple creates. That's an especially important part of their whole business model just because that's why iPhones cost what they are, right? It's because of that proprietary technology and that customized chip that no one else can offer. And and on top of that, What a great OS, right? So I'm your host, Elmer Guardado. Thanks for joining me on this. I hope we helped you get a better understanding of what's going on with Apple's move to Texas. For more, visit MarketScale.com slash industries. On our next feature, we're
0: asking how would cryptocurrency affect the private equity market in real estate? Our guest is finding this out himself through his company. We speak with Matthew Sullivan, CEO and founder of Quantum RE. His company is helping homeowners sell a fraction of the equity in their home without taking on more debt. I know blockchain technologies are still shrouded in doubt, but Sullivan shares the positive impact tokenization is having and will continue to have on the investment industry. Here's MarketScale host Sam Kingma with that feature.
4: Welcome to the software and technology podcast brought to you by market scale. I'm your host Sam Kingma In the United States, there is a $31.8 trillion untapped real estate marketplace via the dead equity found in homes across the country. However, this market has finally opened up through the use of the blockchain, which lets homeowners release their dead equity, but without taking on more debt and without the involvement of banks. Joining us to discuss this recent development in the crypto space is founder and CEO of Quantum RE, Matthew Sullivan. Today, we talk about how the blockchain works, the benefits it brings to homeowners and the marketplace and what's in store for the blockchain outside of real estate. How are you
5: doing, Matt? Sam, thank you very much for having me on.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. I wanted to start this interview conversation off by specifically asking, what does your company, Quantum RE, do?
5: Uh, Well, Quantum RE enables homeowners in the United States to release the equity that's locked up in their homes, but without having to take on more debt. And we do that by using blockchain and cryptocurrency technologies.
4: How does a majority of your potential clientele feel about cryptocurrency?
5: Well, the funny thing is, from uh, uh, most of our uh, clients, we we don't actually need to get them involved with cryptocurrency. So we have two sides to our business. Uh, The first side is the homeowner who has equity in their homes that they're looking to release and we pay them in dollars. Um, and pretty much all of our customers are very happy receiving a check from us in U.S. dollars. So there's no cryptocurrency involved there. Where crypto and the blockchain serves a, a role, and, and you know, play, plays a role rather, um, is we take that real estate asset, which is the equity in someone's home. We put it into a real estate investment trust structure, which is a very tax efficient structure in the U.S., And rather than issue shares to investors in that REIT, we issue tokens. And the benefit of having tokens is that there is a much greater prospect of liquidity and the ability to sell tokens as opposed to shares. So to answer your question, from a homeowner's perspective, they don't need to know anything about the blockchain or cryptocurrency. The investors, however, are able to buy securities tokens, which have a very good prospect of being traded and more liquid in a secondary market, which is emerging uh, rapidly in the United States.
4: So because your clientele doesn't need to know anything about cryptocurrency or the blockchain, how do you go about pitching them your company and why they should get involved with Quantum RE?
5: Well, it's a very simple process, actually. So we use traditional methods. So we um, talk to them via social media, um, via radio, via um, you know, print, and we engage them through real estate agents because we work very much hand-in-hand with all elements of the uh, real estate uh, marketplace because what we're doing is something that enables homeowners to tap into equity in their home Without taking on more debt. So that's really valuable. And if you are a real estate agent, for example, or a realtor, the ability to introduce your client to a mechanism of raising capital without taking on more debt is very attractive. So we have a number of different routes to market, both contacting them directly, but also through various channels. And, you know, all of those benefit the homeowner.
4: Now, you mentioned sort of the act of tokenizing real estate through the blockchain. You mentioned some of the benefits of that. What are some of the drawbacks of doing that or potential challenges that come up?
5: Well, there are some huge technical challenges because this is very much um, a new marketplace. So what we're doing is we're creating a parallel um, capital market system. So when I say us, I mean, it's not just Quantamari. There's a very large number of uh, participants in this overall ecosystem. But we're creating a parallel capital market system that operates um, at a much greater efficiency and a much lower cost than the traditional um, settlement systems and the traditional capital market systems. And the benefit of that is from a consumer's perspective, the cost of settling trades is much lower and the efficiency is much greater. So that means, ultimately, from a customer's perspective or from an investor's perspective, there's more potential liquidity. Uh, that's what the, uh, the blockchain brings. The challenge is, though, is actually making all of that happen in a compliant, reliable way. Um, and that's what uh, uh, there are a very large number of participants are all working together to try and make that happen.
4: You mentioned that this is a brand new up-and-coming industry and I want you to sort of elaborate sort of on how blockchain technologies have disrupted the real estate market.
5: Well, I think really the real estate market is a very large market. In fact, it's probably one of the largest asset classes you know on earth. Historically though, it's, um, it's grown up with a number of um, participants, intermediaries, connected parties. Think of attorneys, title companies, agents, insurance companies, um, all of those play a role when you transfer ownership of a piece of real estate from one person to another. Now, because there are so many parties involved in that process, that adds cost and inaccuracy in some respects. In some cases, it um, it, it makes fraud possible. What the blockchain does is um, gives us the prospect of removing a number of uh, those intermediaries which necessarily equates to a greater efficiency and if you remove um, third parties then in many respects that that removes cost and it also reduces the opportunity for fraud so the blockchain enables in time or will enable the transfer of property in a much more seamless, transparent, and cost-effective way. And the consumer and the property owner is really going to be the person that benefits the most in that respect.
4: Yeah, and I actually want to talk about that and elaborate because obviously there are benefits to using the blockchain to sell of fractions of equity
5: on your home. Could you just sort of explain more of those that might go beyond saving money? Uh, it's really the, the accuracy. I mean, what the blockchain brings is the prospect of trust in a, in a hyper-connected world. So as we move into a, a, a universe where literally tens of billions or trillions of devices uh, are all connected to each other, where um, systems over time communicate um, with each other, so everything that we do will be connected. Every activity that we make, every, every activity that we do will be connected to, to other activities. For example, when we leave our house, we'll use our iPhone or smartphone to switch the alarm on, to turn the lights off, uh, you know, that's a tiny example. But in a hyper-connected world, we need to be able to trust each other and we need to be able to trust the systems that provide that hyper-connectivity. Now, the current systems that are operated by individual companies or individual entities don't give us that level of trust. A blockchain, which is a mutually distributed ledger or distributed system of of maintaining records and data is much more trustworthy. So the blockchain give us, gives us the prospect of being able to build systems in a reliable, scalable, trusted way that will enable that hyperconnectivity. connectivity And one of the benefits of that will be the ability to take assets that previously were very liquid and untradeable and using that layer of trust and technology turn it into something that is, is more liquid, more tradable, um, and you know, we had the prospect of super liquidity in some respects where um, things that could take weeks or months even to transfer ownership could happen in the blink of an eye.
4: Because blockchaining now allows you to turn things that weren't particularly tradable assets into things that are, do you believe that we'll see blockchaining infiltrate other industries like we've seen with real estate? Absolutely.
5: I and mean, if you think about the impact that the internet had on pretty much every industry on the biz- you know, every every industry and business in the world and it didn't happen overnight so the most important thing is that blockchain is not going to have the same over- you know it's, it's not going to happen overnight but it will be pervasive and all encompassing over a period of time and it will happen a lot faster than the impact on the internet but if we think about finance travel you know, God, every industry um, has been made more efficient, more effective, and, and more expansive because of the ability to to you know to move it onto the internet. So, j- just think what, what the blockchain will do. Um, you know, the blockchain has been described as you know the internet version two. So, you know, compare dial-up modems with um, you know with digital and feeds and 5G. That's the sort of you know difference in structures that we're going to see and kind of bringing it back to the real estate market do you believe that
4: this has a chance to make it really mainstream in the commercial real estate market
5: yeah i think again blockchain is such a a baseline technology that is is absolutely applicable to uh, to the real estate market because you know the blockchain provides us with a ledger that is that is something that we can trust uh, and with information stored in that ledger that's information that we can trust. Now ledgers go back, you know, millennia, and they are the foundation of business. So to be able to improve and provide a substantial restructuring of the way that ledgers work will have an impact on every area of real estate, whether it be you know residential, commercial, um, development. You know, every area will benefit from having records and having data held on a blockchain, which removes the need for multiple. Uh, intermediate parties.
4: And do you think as we go forward in time and as more potential or new homeowners become more familiar with the idea of blockchaining as it becomes more prevalent in our society, do you think that this field of of blockchaining and sort of cryptocurrency
5: will grow to astronomical heights? The important thing about blockchain and cryptocurrencies is that they will very soon, those words will take a back seat. And, And rightly so, because in the same way that we don't today talk about hypertext transfer protocols and web technologies, we talk about the applications that use those technologies and how they've improved our lives. So in the same way that blockchain will make such a quantum leap, if you excuse the pun, to our lives as the internet did, we won't use blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Those won't be the words we use. We will be much more focused on the applications that use those technologies. So the, the technology will become pervasive. But we won't know because it will take a, it'll be happening in the background. And that's a, a perfect application of a technology that helps improve and change our lives for the better.
4: You know, that's really interesting, and it's something I never really thought about before, how as this technology becomes more normalized, we won't really think of it as the technology. It'll be more of the application in what it's used for. And I guess I only have one more question for you, and it's that, what do you kind of see on the horizon for blockchain? Do you see this normalization happening in the next five to ten years? Is it a little further down the line? Is there even more that we could possibly do with this technology?
5: I think really we're at the very beginning. So one metaphor that you could use is to say we're on... I don't know, page 25 of a thousand page novel. So we're very much at the beginning, but we're going to race through that novel. So the speed of change, the speed of adoption is far greater than it ever was in the internet because the internet was building on a base of nothing. Blockchain is building on the internet. So the rate of growth is significantly faster. It's almost exponential compared to um, the rate of growth in the, um, with, with the internet. So I think five years is a very long horizon, and we're gonna see some, some massive, important, and fundamental changes to the way that we do pretty much everything, and that'll be based on blockchain technologies.
4: Thank you for coming on, Matt, and thank you, everyone, for listening to today's episode. If you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can follow us at marketscale.com slash industries and subscribe for previous podcast articles and video content from your favorite industries. I'm your host, Sam Kingma, and you have a fantastic rest of your day.
0: All right, that was a great conversation. I always love chatting crypto and blockchain. When I first started as a host here at Market Scale, that was the topic that I touched on maybe three or four times for my first several podcasts. And uh, boy, did I learn a lot. Just seeing how the public perception around blockchain and cryptocurrency has evolved even in just a span of six months is pretty incredible. And I'm really looking forward to seeing how blockchain technology solidifies itself as an emerging tech. Um, I think uh, people are still skeptical about whether or not it's going to remain something that people use in finance or beyond, but I think we're seeing a lot of value in it, and uh, I think if used properly, it can be pretty revolutionary. So for our last piece, we're bringing it back to Campus Reel, and a couple of weeks ago we chatted with Nick Freud. He's the great-grandson of the Sigmund Freud and co-founder of Campus Reel, which is a platform that aims to simplify the college touring experience. The company sources video directly from students on college campuses and hosts it on their site, as authentic video content showing what life is like at that university. Freud and I spoke about the inception of the company and why they decided to take a content curation approach for their company. But this time around, I wanted to dig into the software behind Campus Reel. How do you build a successful video streaming platform from the ground up? And is it feasible to vet all of this content manually? How do you even manage all these users? There are a lot of questions to answer. MarketScale host Elmer Guardado, the one and only has the feature with Rob Carroll, co-founder of Campus Reel.
2: I'm your host, Delmer Guardado, and on this feature, we're sitting down with Rob Carroll, co-founder of Campus Real. Campus Real hopes to bring more accessibility to the college touring landscape by creating a site where students can upload videos of their own college campuses to try and give accurate depictions of what student life is actually like. In this feature, Rob and I are also gonna discuss how Campus Real was almost a VR company and how the company has changed since then. We're also going to break down what goes on in the back end on the software and tech side at Campus Reel and better understand how they're making this all happen. So Rob, I think a good place to start might be to try and understand what's going on on the back end of Campus Reel. How did, you know, I, we know you shifted from VR over to this, you know, user generated content approach, but how difficult was it to make that shift at the beginning?
1: <laughs> That's a great question. Cause, uh, Technologically, it was challenging. I would argue that uh, it's mentally, equally challenging, because we were very dead set on sticking with v- VR for probably four or five months of our business. We actually even got grant money from our college, Colgate University, um, specifically to invest in that idea. And then we were meeting with one of our mentors one day, and he said, "You know, VR is it's cool and it's a great buzzword, but there's not necessarily that consumer adoption yet." And uh, we had a real kind of heart to heart discussion with him and uh, looked at some statistics and realized that he was right. You know, people don't have VR headsets and and campus visits is definitely a great application for VR. Um, but we were just worried that we were gonna build a product that people weren't ready to use yet. And we were gonna come to market too early. Um, so we actually, you know, we ended up spending the whole night thinking, well, what is that, that we would be able to solve? And we realized that the fundamental um, issue in this space is you know, it's a it's a, an access issue. It's that families um, and and millions of students, especially international students, can't visit colleges that they're interested in. Um, and VR is one way to solve that. But we also realized that video and crowdsourced video um, specifically was another way to solve that issue. And so that's kind of what when we, when we made that pivot.
2: Yeah. No. And and that's so funny how that ended up happening, right? Because it clearly was the right decision um especially when considering how like you said right this is an access issue and VR where it is right now there's definitely consumer applications right especially in video games but even in that realm you're looking at a at a steep uh, entry level uh you know whether it's a desktop or a console and plus the VR headset and everything so it it it's so interesting that you did go for this more consumer friendly approach and it, i think it's also beneficial because of what you get out of it, right? You get that personality, that that uh, intimacy that is big right now too, I think in digital media with, you know, the uprise of social media and YouTube and everything. So
1: definitely a genius pivot. Thank you. No, that mean that means a lot. The authenticity in the video content I think really strikes a chord with our users and, and you know that's something that a lot of VR applications I don't think have yet.
2: Yeah, yeah. And and I and I like what you said too, right, about keeping VR in the mind because you did you did say earlier right it, it you might have been too early to the market it's not that the idea is not good it's just that um especially for the market you're trying to hit right like it's just not there yet so it's it'll it'll be interesting to see when we hit that point where VR becomes you know if it ever does uh, a ubiquity but you know to to kind of zoom zoom in a, a little bit more specific what was it like once you made that decision? What what were some of the the hurdles on the software and tech side of understanding, like how are you going to outsource some of these videos? And was there going to be any aggregation or curation? Talk, talk to me about that approach.
1: Yeah, that, that's an awesome question. Um, it, it took truthfully probably 12 months to figure out a system that was both scalable and, and cost effective in order to source videos. Um, And, you know, first we had to learn exactly what videos people wanted to see, which in and of itself took three or four months of experimentation. Um, Once we kind of figured out a structure of the types of videos we needed um, and what we needed to document on campus, um, then it was about, okay, how do we go from 10 or 15 colleges to 200 and, and, you know, eventually 500 colleges. we, we met with tons of college counselors, parents, high school students. We A, B tested videos that were four seconds long versus videos that were three minutes long. Um, and we asked, you know, what's your preference? And do you prefer slight editing versus no editing versus heavy editing? Um, ultimately, we arrived at, you know, kind of what's a pretty happy blend of all three of those techniques. Um, and then as for recruitment, a lot of it was just, word of mouth referrals, kids absolutely love doing this job. And we've had some really cool reviews from students, you know, saying that they've loved exploring their campus in a whole new light. And they've, you know, really pushed their comfort zone in that, in that way. Um, so, so it's been pretty cool. A lot of the growth has been organic and then we also have, you know, all these systems in the back end so that we can add a college to the platform in about five days for a couple hundred bucks.
2: Wow. Okay, cool. So talk to me about that then. How do you go, because you, you're talking about, you know, you have specific schools on your site and, and you have people working for you creating some of this content. How does, how does that work? What does it take for someone to, to get involved or, or to get their college on this site?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, when we first started out, actually, Nick and I were doing phone interviews with every single student that posted videos to our site. And it was cool because they got bought into the platform and they all loved the mission. Um, But we we were like, uh, are we gonna have to have phone calls with every kid who ever wants to post videos? Are we gonna be able to get away from that? Um, Ultimately, what we've created is a a training program essentially that really any student can go through um, and it turns them into a really effective storyteller for their campus. Um, So the training program just kind of guides them through how to effectively capture their campus with nothing more than a smartphone. Um, and then what we've created in the back end kind of, um, you know, related to your question about the tech powering this whole system. Um, it's essentially an end-to-end creation software.
2: Wow, wow. Okay, so what about from the, you know, and this is kind of a, an interesting question because I think the... I'll, I'll, there's been a new emphasis placed on smart UI design and and making something not only accessible, but also appealing, right? So, and, and I think your your site, it's definitely immediately pops and there's a, there's a lot going on there in good ways. So talk to me about that. What was the approach for the UI decisions and what kind of things did you consider or try to avoid?
1: Yeah, totally. Well, so it's a great question because we're still working on it. I would say that um, the site is still a work in progress, although it's awesome and, and users love the experience as is. Um, we we actually saw this funny um, kind of ex- user experience when we first started bringing people onto the platform in April and May, where students would land on a college profile. And they would scroll through all of these videos and then they would leave and they wouldn't open a video <laughs> nick and i are thinking what's going on i mean that's that's our differentiator nobody has these videos they can look at the statistics anywhere you know but the videos are really the the magic um, recipe here and so we actually got some uh ux advice from a mentor who said you know why don't you model your site more along the lines of a netflix uh, where the video is really front and center so if you were to go to our site today, you'd see that we actually have essentially a hero section on every single college profile page, of the first video in every student's tour. Um, and that really kind of draws you in and it makes it really clear that our desired action for you to take is to click a button that says begin tour. Like that is the button that we want you to click and we make it super easy to do that. Um, and ever since we made that switch, our engagement has gone through the roof. So, you know, kids don't come to the site without watching videos. Um, it's really the first action they take, uh, which has been a big, I think, insight that we learned.
2: Yeah, yeah. No. And what has it been like, you know, since you're using, you know, outsourced content and user-generated content, what's it been like building these relationships and, you know, are you taking user feedback? What What's that been like now that the site's live?
1: Yeah. So uh, the user feedback for for the sake of, of uh, college students who are uploading videos, I mean, we pretty much learned that we needed to create an experience that was similar to YouTube. A lot of college students already post videos to YouTube, but it's less purposeful, right? Like it might be one day about your makeup and the next day about your dorm room. um, And there's no centralization to it. You can't really dig deep into a college, but we still needed to kind of mimic the whole idea of tagging and adding locations to all the videos and assembling them into a tour was actually our own idea how to allow anybody to create that easily, but we actually work directly with our ambassadors to create our online training program. So we have a video that all of our students have to go through, and it kind of walks them through the steps of you know, how to effectively create a campus tour, and we actually had our own ambassador from Boston University create that video because he did a really great job with this tour and we wanted him to communicate you know kind of how, how he did it so effectively. Um, so we actually worked directly with college kids to make sure that the system was working for them the way it needed to. Um, from a user perspective, as I mentioned, I mean, we, we've just pretty much talked with high school students and parents non-stop since day one. Um, so it's, it's really, you know, from that, I guess for those users, it's been a much more iterative process. Um, the site really does change on a weekly or monthly basis based off their feedback. Um, And we do everything from focus group testing um, to actually getting on the phone one-on-one with specific people or emailing specific users who we see are, you know, real power users. Um, And then also using tools like Inspectlet. If you're familiar with Inspectlet, um, I highly recommend it to anybody who's trying to get that user insight. Um, And also Google Analytics. We can just see all the interactions that our users are taking.
2: Awesome. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool to have that, like, mutually... uh... Or I guess symbiotic relationship, right? Where you're both feeding off of each other in that way. Um, and my last question for you, for you, Rob, is, uh, you know, looking forward, and again in a software and tech context, what does scaling look like for you? Right? You mentioned VR, and I know that's part of the plan. But what, what are you, uh, you know, what are some obstacles you're you're not anticipating, and what are some highs you're anticipating?
1: Yeah. So uh, I think VR is totally uh, at the forefront of what we're doing, and we always have our eyes toward that. Um, The other thing, we actually stumbled upon this statistic only three or four months ago. So about a year and a half into the company. And I thought it was really interesting. It said 80% of the world's internet traffic will be video by 2020. And, you know, obviously, when we pivoted away from VR, we didn't have an appreciation for how fast uh, video was going to grow. And not just video, but authentic video. So that's why Snapchat and Instagram and all these other platforms are growing so quickly. I think it's the authenticity, and so really our main concern right now is going from the 350 tours on the platform to another six or seven hundred uh, tours, and making sure that we can, you know, offer content and authentic content, video content at pretty much any school that you can think of across the country. So our number one priority is just scaling video content, um, and then after that, you know, we can build out incredible features that really help connect uh, the community in other really cool, meaningful
2: ways. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, Rob, thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time and uh, I wish you the best of luck.
1: Thanks, Homer. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me.
0: All right, y'all. Unfortunately, per usual, that does it for today's episode of the Market Scale Software and Technology Show. I really wasn't kidding when I started the episode that I need to do all my holiday shopping still. Uh, By the time you hear this, hopefully I will have purchased everything I need to. And I'm probably digging myself into a hole by going to the mall (laughs) as my go-to spot to do all the shopping. Hopefully they've got uh, solid stocks and hopefully everything I need is there because I do not have the time to do multiple trips. I plan on hitting... Urban Outfitters, Zara, the Lego store uh, i for my sister, but also personally, you know, I do enjoy the Lego store. Plan on hitting uh, Amazon.com. That doesn't require any traveling uh, except to my bed with my PJs and my laptop. So got a lot still left to do. And I hope all of you have already done your Christmas shopping, because let me tell you, waiting this long is a nightmare. But on a more positive note, I hope you all enjoyed this episode of the Software and Technology Podcast Show. And if you'd like to find out more or listen to previous episodes, you can head to marketscale.com/slash industries and subscribe to previous podcasts, articles, and video content from your favorite industries. Make sure you leave a comment and a rating wherever you listen to your podcast content. And if you're interested in and being on a feature on our podcast show, or know someone who would make for a great thought leader, shoot me an email at daniel.litwin at marketscale.com. Again, daniel.litwin, L-I-T-W-I-N, at marketscale.com. In case you didn't get enough of my name, I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Have a happy holidays, everyone. Till next time.